Okay, so let's get back into our study of Genesis. This is lesson number 15. I always try to say that at the beginning in case anyone is trying to kind of figure out where we are in the number of lessons or in the recordings or what have you. But this is our 15th lesson in our study. And we started uh, kind of reintroducing this idea of a, bi- a biblical anthropology. Uh, we started that uh, several weeks ago as a, as a point of slight introduction, but now we're really getting into it uh, in much more depth and specificity as we look at more closely at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25, in the, in the heart of that chapter, which really focuses on the creation of man on Genesis day 6. And we've talked, obviously, quite a bit about some of the interpretive challenges, uh, some of the controversy, if you will, surrounding interpretation or proper view of Genesis chapter 2 versus the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1. And we've dealt with that, I think, pretty extensively and uh, hopefully enough to give you a sense of clarity around, um, around how to think rightly about this particular section of the creation narrative. <clears throat> but really, today, I want to continue to focus more and more on this uh, priority, this need for us to have a clear biblical anthropology. And just to kind of reset in our minds the definition of anthropology so that you kind of have a sense of what we're talking about and and what we mean when we talk about just that particular branch of the sciences. Anthropology is the science that deals with the origins, physical and cultural development, biological characteristics, and social customs and beliefs of humankind. So obviously, if Genesis chapter 1 begins with the beginning, then it's incumbent upon us to understand from a biblical perspective an anthropology, not just from a purely naturalistic perspective, uh, these things about man and his origin and cultural development and so forth. So that's really, really what Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is about. It's the beginning of an understanding of man and his place in God's world and his relationship to God, and his relationship to uh, his fellow human beings, and to God's creation. So that's what we're dealing with. Now, I want to start by posing a question. Um, Obviously, uh, I think having a biblical, a clear biblical anthropology is important. Um, That's why I'm teaching this lesson. But I, I do want to pose the question and get your feedback on why you think it's very important for us to have a very clear and comprehensive biblical anthropology. Why is that important for us as, as Bible-believing Christians? Um, even if, and, and, and obviously the pat answer is, well, if it's in the Bible, we should understand it and know it. But I mean, I'm talking about a little, maybe a little more practically or a little more thoughtfully. Why, why would that be important for us in the year 2015, almost 2016, living out our Christian lives day to day? Any thoughts on that? The way we view the world and our purpose in it has everything to do with how we view ourselves. Okay. Yeah, so there might be an apologetic need for it in your interactions with other people. Okay, what else? Any other thoughts? Right. If you don't have a solid idea of what how to interpret the biblical worldview, you will start setting off. It becomes foundational for just thinking right in, in the face of what we face in a fallen world. Right. It's good. I mean, last time, 
I asked us to kind of engage in a little bit of an exercise, a thought exercise, and I asked us to consider what, what if we adopted the presupposition that, which is dominant today, obviously, that, uh, that is, an, is, is an evolutionary anthropology, and, and what kind of conclusions might we draw about man if we, if we assumed that man as a species has evolved over a long period of time through a process of natural selection and mutation. Just that one assumption about the beginning of an anthropology, a view of anthropology, what kind of conclusions would we draw from that? And you guys started rattling off some very thoughtful, good um, conclusions that you might draw if that was your presupposition about man as, as, a, as a point of anthropology. But let's, let's try to re refresh our minds with some of those. What were some of the things that we, we brought up as conclusions you might draw if that was your predisposition, that man has evolved from over a long period of time, from primordial soup, as they say? There is no God. What's, what would that lead to, potentially? Okay, so an absence of accountability. What else? Yeah, a lack of purpose, dehumanization, no value of human life. You brought, we, we really, I think, as I thought back on some of that discussion, uh, I think that we probably landed on, you know, in various ways, we landed on three key um, conclusions that you would draw, key, key places you would end up in if you, if you thought like that about man. Um, the first conclusion, uh, or, the, or the, I guess the first outcome, maybe, uh, is, a, is an outcome of just pride, the pride of man. Um, someone mentioned last week about how man is the pinnacle of the evolutionary chain. So if man is on top, man's the, man's the pinnacle of the evolutionary chain, then that could lead to a certain pride, uh, an intellectual pride, for sure. Um, you know, there's this idea that Man is so highly evolved that we could pretty much ascend any summit of knowledge we, uh, you know, seek to attain to, given enough time, and you know, we see even we could even justify or we can we can uh, validate that by virtue of the nature of uh, man's development, man's actual development over time, the advances of man in the areas of science and technology and so forth, and we would look at that if we were coming from this vantage point, and we would say. Man is a highly evolved creature, and we, be, we reach a point where we pretty much can know anything with enough time. We can achieve anything with enough time and enough layers of resources and information and research and development piled onto it uh, one year after another, a year after another year. And so we develop sort of just an innate pride in the the reasoning faculties and the intellectual prowess of man. It just leads to pride. So in other words, like the religion of man or humanism basically fills the godless void by saying the world eventually becomes godlike. That would be the logical philosophical conclusion, right? I mean, that's, that's where this whole thing is headed. And when you listen to people talk um, from this vantage point, I mean, that's kind of what you hear. Um, Richard Dawkins, famous atheist writer and speaker, um, I'm sure many of you have heard of him, 
Uh, I mean, he's a staunch atheist. He, he, is, he is basically a, uh, you know, I would consider him like an archbishop of atheism. I mean, he is like an evangelist for atheism. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's obviously uh, a bright mind. I mean, he's Oxford professor, um, you know, I think of bio- biology as his background. Um, but he, he, to me, possesses this, this outcome of unbelievable intellectual pride in the way that he presents himself and the, and the things that he says. Um, here's one quote from Richard Dawkins. He says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So Richard Dawkins, that's his verdict on the God of the Old Testament, standing in judgment on the supreme judge, right? And yet, in in the blindness of his arrogance, he says this at another time. Personally, I rather look forward to a computer program winning the World Chess Championship. Humanity needs a lesson in humility. Isn't that ironic? Here's this man who stands in complete judgment of the God who made him and his pride and his arrogance, but he really would like for there to be more humility amongst mankind, and hopefully maybe a computer program that can beat people in chess would would do that. Just amazing. Another uh, outcome that we talked about that we identified, and we've identified it here too a little bit, is this outcome of despair, right? Hopelessness, no purpose, hopelessness. Um, that man is simply the end result of this complex chain of processes, chemical reactions, and biological mutations. Um, there's really no, no point or reason to it. It's random. There's no grand, or meaning, grand meaning or purpose to our existence. So there's a despairing potential outcome to this kind of mindset when you start thinking about an anthropology that begins with this idea of evolution. Carl Sagan, a renowned astronomer and the creator of the TV series Cosmos, in December of 1996 said this, and this was about three weeks before he actually died. He said the following in an interview. He said, we live on a hunk of rock and metal that circles a humdrum star that is one of 400 billion other stars that make up the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of billions of other galaxies which make up a universe which may be one of a very large number, perhaps an infinite number of other universes. That is a perspective on human life and our, and our culture that is well worth pondering. And then in a book that he published near the end of his life, he also wrote, our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. So here's another proponent, an astronomer, of a godless sort of evolutionary mindset, naturalistic mindset, and he's, at least he's intellectually honest. I mean, it's a despairing outcome that you, you lead to. If that's all that there is, it's, there's really no help for humanity. And then you mentioned diminishment, this dehumanization that takes place, or, or maybe a step before that would be a diminishing of man's significance, and that would be this idea that all... All organisms, all living organisms possess equal value, 
even though some, like humans, have evolved to a more intelligent species. And so, therefore, it's immoral for man to exercise any real dominion over the earth. And that's where you get into um, sort of the rabid environmentalist kind of movement. Um, it really stems from this idea that man is no different than any other species. Uh, Ingrid Newkirk, founder of PETA, I, I quoted this uh, several weeks ago, uh, the, the founder of the, um, what's PETA stand for? Um, the, yeah, something for the ethical treatment of, I can't remember what the first word is. People for the ethical treatment, yeah, treatment of animals, PETA. She said this, there is no rational basis for saying that a human being has special rights. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. So that's that mindset, kind of a diminishment mindset of man as a special creation. And then you go to that last extreme of complete dehumanization of man. And that gets you to a place where you just say that uh, man has no innate or intrinsic value that would distinguish him from any other organism, so... If it is truly a survival of the, of the fittest kind of world that we live in, then the ends, survival, always justifies the means, which could be, I don't know, pick your poison, brutality, genocide, objectification of people, seeing people as objects, not as human beings to value, manipulation, this is where you get the influences of Karl Marx and Nazism in Germany. I mean, they were heavily influenced by Darwinian thought, just so you know, so that you can completely dehumanize entire swaths of humanity and, and feel justified in it. So this is the outcome of a, an unbiblical anthropology, or these are some of the outcomes of it. So it's not just that it's good for us Christians to have a good, thorough biblical anthropology. The reality is that an unbiblical anthropology can be incredibly destructive, individually destructive, culturally destructive, societally destructive, and ultimately eternally damning, right? I mean, it, it, this is a big, big deal. This is no small matter. So we want to move ourselves toward a very thorough biblical anthropology, and and make sure we have this set firmly in our minds. And I think it's also good to think about it from an apologetic, evangelistic perspective. Um, it's helpful for us to, th to recognize when we're talking to people that you just don't want to get into discussions that are just point-counterpoint, you know, surface-level belief arguments. You really want to try to work your way around to the other side of that discussion in terms of what's their What's their primary point of reference for them even saying what they're saying? And if you can start talking in terms of your core beliefs about anthropology and, and really start to expose some of the potential logical outcomes of this way of thinking, then at least they're forced to deal head-on with their own belief system. Whether they come to faith in Christ, that's certainly up to the Lord, right? But at least they're having to confront the the corruption and error of their own belief system from a philosophical standpoint, right? So we want to, we're working our way toward a, a biblical anthropology, and we're, we're really focusing in on that as we begin looking more closely at Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4, through the end of the chapter. And we're going to kind of hang our thoughts on several ideas here. We're going to look at man's creator, 
We're going to look at man's formation. We're going to look at man's environment. We're going to look at man's vocation. We're going to look at man's accountability, at man's dominion, and man's relationships. So that's going to be kind of our working outline as we move forward into this. So let's read, again, Genesis chapter 2, and we'll start today by looking at man's creator, and that will that'll kind of finish this out for, for the day. Starting in verse 4, Genesis chapter 2, it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So let's look closely today a little bit at man's creator. Obviously, the first thing we see in this passage, again, just like we start off with when we started Genesis chapter 1-1, you begin with the eternal creator. But we talked about this, and we highlighted this a number of weeks ago, a couple of different times over the last few weeks that this, as it relates to God revealing himself to us through his word, at this point in the text, in the narrative, we see a change, a distinguishing characteristic about God right out of the gate. Do you guys remember what we identified as as right out of the gate in the the text? Yes, there's there's a change in the name, okay? So God identifies himself in his revelation here with a a distinguishing name. Okay, so I want to look at that because it does give us some indication as to the nature of God and his relationship to man as he's beginning this creative process of creating man and woman. Now, the name that we see here is, in English, obviously, it's translated Lord God. It's it's really Yahweh Elohim is the the Hebrew term. So what you have in Genesis chapter 1 through the end of that part of the narrative in chapter 2, verse 3, is you just have Elohim, 
okay, which is, which is a uh, generic name for God. I don't want to say generic. That's not the right way to put it. But it's a, a common name for God, if you will. It's the plural masculine form of El. And it's used in that whole section of Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 2, 3 with singular verbs to indicate a one God with plurality in, in his being kind of a revelation of his nature to us, okay? So that, that's, the, that's, the, the, that's the name for God that's used in the first uh, part of Genesis, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. This is a reference to the sovereign eternal, majestic God. This is a reference to God's um, power and authority. And if you look at the text, the text gives you those kinds of indications the way it flows out. I mean, what do we see happening in Genesis chapter 1? We see God exercising supreme authority because what he does is he speaks and things come into existence out of nothing. So you see the essence of creative power, a being that is eternal, like there is no beginning and no end, who speaks and things come into existence out of nothing else. That is an ultimate demonstration of power and sovereignty and authority. Out of nothing he speaks and everything comes into being according to his pleasure and his purpose alone. That's what you see in Genesis chapter 1. When you look throughout Scripture, you see this, this character of God, this, this nature of God as sovereign, all-powerful, all-authoritative, operating according to His purpose and His good pleasure alone. You see these, these references all throughout Scripture, but let's just look at a few just to set this in our minds. Okay, This is, this is man's creator we're talking about. Uh, Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. In other words, there's nothing left out. What He does, He does what He pleases, and He does all that He pleases all the time. Isaiah 46.8-10 says this, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Any questions? I mean, the, the, the nature of the text is emphatic. I am God. I do what I please. I am sovereign. I accomplish my purposes. The end from the beginning. That's the nature of the, and the thrust of the text here. But I think one of the more poignant powerful, compelling passages in all of Scripture, certainly in all the Old Testament, that to me gives us a glimpse into this sovereign nature, this majestic, eternal, powerful God who is our creator, and the fact that he wants man to know this and to recognize this as part of who he is, as a part of his character and his nature. Please don't forget this. Make sure you get this. Make sure that you, as you think about God, that you don't think of him as anything less than this. It is in Job chapter 38. Now, to kind of set the scene here, you have Job, who, uh, if you've ever read the book of Job, it starts off where um, Satan approaches uh, God and his counsel with the sons of God, and he wants to uh, strike Job. 
You know, he, they're looking for a, a man who will worship God, and he wants to strike Job. He wants to test Job. So Job gets stricken. You know, God kind of allows uh, Satan to have his way with Job within, within a certain measure. And Job is stricken with all kinds of suffering and trial in, in terms of losing his family and losing his, his wealth and, and, and suffering um, painful boils all over his body. I mean, it's just, it's horrible. It's a horrible, horrible series of trials that he, he undergoes uh, under the uh, permissive uh, allowance of God by the hand of the enemy. And you have all throughout the book of Job uh, this, this saga of what Job is experiencing and really uh, uh, a wrestling of the theology about behind all of this. There's, this, there's this, this toil and turmoil of the theology. Why would God be doing this? What is God allowing to happen here? What is the purpose behind it? And, of course, Job has some friends that come along and begin to counsel him. And do you, who, who remembers what kind of the thrust of their, their counsel to Job is in the midst of all this? Some of it is give up. What else? Repent. Obviously, Job, you've got sin in your life, and that's why this is happening. And you need to repent and confess your sin and deal with it because God is striking you because of your sin. And then toward the end of the book, you have Elihu. Elihu shows up, and Elihu's a younger one, right? And he's been quiet the whole time because he's out of respect for the elders. And he's not wanting to speak out of turn, and he's not wanting to speak out of a lack of wisdom or experience, but he gets to a point where he's heard enough. He's heard enough. And he begins to counsel Job, and start to, to, and his counsel starts to move things in the right direction, But this is after Job gives his final lament saying, I got nothing and why, still, I don't understand why God would allow this to happen. Elihu begins to counsel him toward this this majestic God and how you shouldn't question him. And then God shows up. And here's what God says to him in Job chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. And you make it known to me. And again, we're talking about the creator, right? Where does he go? Where does God go? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together with all the sons of God and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther and here shall your, your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way of the dwelling light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may... 
Take it to its territory that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed? Or where is the east wind, where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft the channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on the land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth, the constellations, in their seasons? Or can you guide the bear, another constellation, with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom, or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens? When the dust runs into mass and the the clods stick fast together, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander for lack of food? That's the end of chapter 38, and he's not even finished. So if we think for one second that God does not want us to recognize that he is sovereign, completely sovereign, completely in control, and he does what he pleases, and it is dangerous, dangerous work for you to begin to question him and his purposes, then you haven't read the scriptures. And when you come to Genesis chapter 2, you start to see a glimpse of this. You see God forming and creating. But you also see at the very beginning, it says that something hadn't sprung up yet because God had not yet sent the rain. So you you even see in the the nature of the way the text flows out in Genesis chapter 2, that God is in charge of his creation completely, totally, without question. So you have Elohim in the Genesis chapter 1 narrative, and then you have Yahweh Elohim in Genesis chapter 2. Now this starts to get more personal. This moves God and his character into his personal engagement in the creation and purposefulness in relationship with man. That's, that's why this name is identified. It's a more personal present designation. It, uh, Yahweh, what is Yahweh? Remember what that means? It's, God, it's, it's like the present tense. It's what It's how God identified him when Moses asked the question, when Moses was being called to go to Pharaoh and command that Pharaoh release his people, God's people, from bondage. And Moses said, who should I say sent me? And this is the answer that God gave him. I am who I am. It's the tetragrammaton. It's it's, it's these four Hebrew letters. Um, Orthodox Jews don't even want to pronounce it. They don't even want to say the, the name. It's so sacred, right? So it, it, is the, it is God's way of identifying himself at this pivotal moment, Yahweh. And it's, it's, not just, it's not just a reference to God and his eternality, because if you think about it in just a grammatical sense, it's a present tense 
reference to God. I am who I am. I, I mean, you know, you could, you could look at his eternality and say that, you know, wherever you are, there God is, right? And you could think of it in sort of present tense, always present tense grammatical terms. But it's more than that. It's, 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 a, it's a reference to God's presence with his people. It's a reference to God being um, um, trustworthy to his covenant and to his promises. It, it's, it's, it's a personal reference to God. It's an intimate designation here. It's a reference to his relational purpose and care over his image bearers. That's what we're seeing beginning to be introduced here in Genesis chapter 2. So you have this, this new name for God being introduced. So yes, you have Elohim, God, sovereign, majestic creator, all-powerful. Make no mistake, I'm in control, and I do everything according to my purpose. But then you have this reference to God being personal. God having purpose for his, his creation of man that is special and unique. God being relational. God being present in this, in this relationship and in this creative process with man. That's, that's the essence of what's being introduced here. Psalm 146 captures this idea very, very well, too. I want to read this to you just so you can kind of hear. You'll hear references to both Yahweh and Elohim in this text. You'll hear references to God's creative work, but you'll also hear references to God's kindness and graciousness and presence and being a helper and a deliverer and a savior. Okay, so listen to Psalm 146 and how the psalmist captures the essence of who God is. In his, in his being as being Yahweh Elohim. He says in Psalm 146, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down, and the Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Do you hear that mixture of sovereignty, of creative power, of authority, mixed with loving kindness and care and concern for the oppressed? That that is a revelation of the character of God that we see in in Yahweh Elohim in Genesis chapter 2 as he begins this creative process in creating man. And as I began to think about this, I mean, obviously, there's so much that we could say about this. I mean, we could go to Scripture after Scripture and look at the character and nature of God as he reveals himself as both sovereign, doing according to his purpose, but also a covenant God in relationship to his people and a caring God who loves them and, and cares for them and, and brings restitution to them and redemption and forgiveness and, and loving kindness and provision. We could, we could talk about that on and on and on as we look throughout the scriptures. But I, as I thought about this, this, this um, beautiful picture of God's character and his nature as he's revealed himself to us, and I thought about the season that we're in. Think about the Christmas season. Think about that for a second. This God who is sovereign, but also personal and intimate. And think about what we celebrate at Christmas. Someone turned to John chapter 1, 
and read verses 1 to 3, and then skip down and read verse 14. Same attributes being revealed in the actual incarnation of Christ, right? He was in the beginning. Everything that was made was made by him. Nothing that was made has been made without him, right? But he became flesh and he dwelt among us. Someone turn to Luke chapter 2 and read. I love this, this little account of the, the uh, traditional Christmas narrative in Luke chapter 2. But I, I want to focus in on, on verses 8 to 14. This is the, the setting with the shepherds. Someone else take that one for me. So when you look at the, the narrative of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a royal pronouncement. You have the coming of a ruling monarch. You have him named by the angels as Christ the Lord. And all in the same paragraph, you'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So when you and I contemplate what it means to, to have a, a biblical anthropology, it always needs to begin with a recognition of who your creator is. And we, we fall short if our anthropology and, and our relationship to our creator is constantly dominated by the sovereign creator who does what he purposes in the universe, and there's no recognition of God coming and humbling himself in the form of Christ and redeeming a people back to him. God is sovereign, but he's also redeemer and savior. God is without equal, and yet he humbled himself willingly to be our sacrifice. So as we think about our, our celebration of the Christmas season, I think it's very timely and, and, I don't know, insightful to think about God the creator Coming also God the Savior, and recognizing that even in the nature of his name, that he is Elohim, but he's also Yahweh, meaning he is unchanging. So the God who created is the same as the God who came in human flesh. And when you see that that character quality of God run throughout the scriptures, he reveals himself from Old Testament through New Testament through Revelation. What you will find is you will find these, these character qualities of God hand in hand as a part of his essence and who he is and how we should relate to him. We should relate to him in worship, in complete awe and reverence of who he is. 
but also he's a savior. He calls himself friend. It's an amazing, amazing relationship that we've been called into by the grace of God. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we're so grateful for your, your word and how it shows you to us in clear and vivid detail. I thank you for the fact that you have made us, um, you've created us for a purpose, that you have formed us in your image and your likeness, that you, in spite of our sin, have made a way for us to be reconciled to you through Christ. I thank you that as we, that we celebrate the birth of Christ this week, um, I thank you that, that our celebration can be all the more poignant and fulfilling and satisfying as we contemplate accurately who you are, that you are sovereign, creator, all-powerful, majestic God who made yourself humble and like us to bring about redemption and to reconcile us to you. And so I pray that as we go from here and we enter into a time of worship, that our hearts would be full and that we would recognize that our opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth is a tremendous privilege. And as we leave here today and we enter into a time of celebration of the birth of Christ, that our hearts again would also be full as we think about your character and who you are and what you've done in both creating us and recreating us in the image of Christ. So help us to really think carefully and thoughtfully about all these truths and to respond to you faithfully in them in Christ's name. Thank you, guys.